Let's turn with me in your Bibles to the end of the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew 28, we will be looking at the first 10 verses. Please give your full attention to God's holy, transformative, inerrant word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Last week, as we were in our studies in Esther, we talked about turning points, how God is all about reversals in life. One of those turning points in our own country and in our lifetimes was September 11, 2001, when the terrorists used airplanes to attack the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. That was an event that was a turning point. It changed the way that America looks at itself, the way that America looks at other cultures, the way that we look at our own security. It's one of those events that tends to cause people to ask each other the question, where were you when you heard about the attacks? I remember very clearly I was sitting in my office on an ordinary Tuesday morning. And I was just doing my business, I was checking email, and suddenly two emails popped up. One from a member of my congregation that said simply, turn on your TV. The second email I got was more ominous. It was from my brother-in-law who was an officer in the Air Force. And it said simply, life as we know it just changed. And I didn't know what it was about. So I ran to my TV, and as I watched the towers fall over the next couple hours, I remember being filled with a, with a new and strange anxiety that I never really felt before. I would call it fear, but it was a fear of the unknown, of knowing that what my brother-in-law said was true, that my life would probably not be the same from that point on. It was going to change, but I didn't know how, and I didn't know how much. Now, in hindsight, it wasn't, September 11th was not the, the dramatic change, maybe, that we feared, but certainly it has subtly, in many ways, changed our mindsets, changed our view of the world, and changed, certainly, our own sense of our own security. 
We've all been in similar situations many times in life in smaller ways. Something big happens, whether it's positive or negative, but something big happens that we know is going to change our lives. Something that's going to have a big impact, but you're just not sure what that impact is going to be, and you're anxious about it, you're fearful about it. Maybe it's the way that a bride or groom feels on the morning of their wedding. Or maybe the way that a, a, a husband and wife feel as they go to the hospital to give birth to their first child. Or maybe it's how an employee feels when the boss says, we're going to have to let you go. Or maybe how we feel when a doctor sits across the desk from us and says, I'm sorry to tell you, you have cancer. It's that fear, that anxiety you feel of knowing something has just happened that's going to change my life. And I'm just not sure what those changes are going to be. I'm not sure how prepared I am for them, whether they're good or bad. This, that feeling, if you can identify to that, with that to any degree, helps you to understand how these women felt that morning that Matthew 28 just told us about. Those women that went to the tomb to honor their crucified Lord and Savior. It says here in the text that they were filled with fear and great joy. An interesting combination of emotions. They were filled with fear and great joy. Now, just before that, it, it, that's why this was a turning point in their lives, because just before that, they were, fear, they were filled with fear and great grief. Again, because something big had happened on the Friday, a day and a half earlier, had something had happened to them that they knew was dramatically going to change their lives because Jesus Christ, whom they had given their lives to, who they had followed, had been crucified. And they're still processing that. When they came to the tomb and they found the tomb empty, and the angel told them that he was risen. I think that what this passage of scripture would cause all of us to do, no matter where you're at in your faith, whether you don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, or that you say that you believe that he was raised from the dead, but it really doesn't make an impact in your life. Or whether you have committed your life to the risen Christ and you live for him every day. Every Lord's Day, and especially every Easter Sunday, should be a time for you to say, what difference does it make in my life if what the angel said was true? Jesus is risen. If that's true, does that cause fear and grief or does that cause fear and joy? It's got to cause one or the other. You can't just ignore it. As we said last week, God's plan for all of history is about reversals, turning points, historical events that change the entire direction according to what God always intended causing the first to become last and the last to become first. Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, said, My soul magnifies the Lord. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. 
our Lord is all about reversals. Well, how does the resurrection change things? After Jesus died, a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea asked the Roman governor Pilate for the body of Christ. He did that because in that day, that's the way the what, when somebody was a criminal was crucified by the Romans, what they did is they would toss his body, the body of all of these criminals that were crucified on crosses, they would toss them into a, an open pit. And so Joseph of Arimathea, who had followed Christ, had said, I don't want that to happen to his body. And so he asked for the body, and he took it, and he hastily prepared it for burial because the Sabbath day was beginning with sundown on that day. And so he hastily anointed it with oils and, and spices and put linens around the body and then took it to a brand-new grave among the rich and placed the body of Christ there as an act of honor in memory of what Christ had meant to him. Well, it says in the text that some of the women who had been at the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die, they went with Joseph to the tomb and watched him being buried so they knew where he was, and then they had to wait until the Sabbath was over. And so at the very first opportunity, which would be at the very break of dawn, one of the other gospel writers makes it clear they actually left Jerusalem, the city, while it was still dark, as it was becoming dawn, so that they would have light by the time that they got to where the tomb was, so that they could finish the work of preparing the body, that it would be received the utmost in honor that their Lord Jesus deserved. So they came with spices to prepare the body. Matthew only mentions two of them, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. That's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's Mary, the mother of Joseph, a different Mary. There are several Marys in the life of Jesus. But the two Marys are the only ones mentioned by Matthew. We know from the other gospel accounts that there are probably at least five women in this group that went to the tomb. Mark's gospel mentions that they were concerned about how they were going to get access to the body because how were these women going to move the huge stone that was in front of the opening to the tomb? And that just shows you how grief can cause you to be a bit irrational. It's funny that they didn't think of that before they left. It's funny that they didn't have a plan for dealing with that. Who knows what they really thought was going to have, how in the world they were going to get to the body. But verses 2 to 4, and as you read this, this passage in Matthew 28, you have to understand that the, uh, what Matthew's doing is he's, he's kind of stepping back. He's, he's jumping back a little bit in time. He says the women are coming to the tomb, but then he steps back a, a few, uh, maybe an hour, a few hours in, in, in time to the past and says here's what happened while they were on their way or before they arrived there. God had already taken care of the stone. God had sent an earthquake, and he sent an angel to move the stone. It says that when this happened, again, before the women arrived, when this happened, the Roman soldiers that had been stationed there by Pilate, by request of the Jewish leadership, those Roman soldiers, says that when they saw the, heard the earthquake, felt the earthquake, 
when the angel appeared, it says they fell as dead men. In other words, they fainted. They didn't actually die. They just fainted, went unconscious. And then when they came to, they saw the angel, and they fled for their lives. You can imagine what they were thinking. He said, Pilate put us here to fight off thieving disciples. We're not, we weren't sent here to fight angels. And so they take off. And then that's at that point that the, that the women come to the tomb. And they first see that the stone has been rolled away. It's laying flat on the ground. It's open, and when they go and inspect the tomb, and this, again, we're putting things together with other Gospels to get the whole story. It does say that they look at the tomb first, and then they see the angel. We also know, probably, that Mary Magdalene, and in case you're wondering, if you're trying to put this together with what the Gospel of John says, Mary Magdalene, it seems as though she ran back to tell Peter and and John about the empty tomb before the other women saw the angel. That's, she shows up later after Peter and John inspect the empty tomb and then she encounters the angel. So Mary Magdalene probably has left the scene at this point but the other women are there and they encounter the angel who is sitting on the stone. And this is the moment for them and for all of us where we say life as we know it just changed. How does it change? What will this mean for these women and for all who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, the resurrection turns lives from despair to hope. The angel says to them, I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He says, I see your heart. I see the grief. I, fear, I see the fear and the grief that has gripped you. And you have come here looking for a corpse, a dead body, the remnant of the master and teacher that you followed, that you listened to, from whom you learned so much. You've come here to honor his memory. I often wonder, so many people say, what is your hope? When you go to the, to the funerals of unbelievers, those who don't know Christ, They'll say, oh, as long as we hold this person in our memory, they're still alive. What a vain, empty hope that is. But that was the only hope that these women had as they came to the tomb to, to remember Christ and to honor his memory. They were thinking the same thing that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus had been thinking when they said to the man that they did not yet know was the risen Christ, they said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The women came to the tomb expecting to find a victim of corrupt Jewish leaders and pagan Roman officials in that tomb. The angel says, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. They had hoped that he would be the Messiah. They would hope that he would not just be another prophet. But now since he had been crucified, since he was dead in their grief, they're realizing that the one that they had hoped would be the Messiah that would bring the fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout the whole Old Covenant period, they knew that they would have to rethink who he was. Obviously, he wasn't the Messiah because he's dead. He must just have been a, a good man, a good teacher, a prophet. 
like so many who don't really know Jesus believe today. He was just a good man, just a prophet, just a teacher. In their minds, they were shifting. They were trying to understand, well, he's dead, so that means he must be no different really than Abraham or Moses or David or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Great men who taught great truths, but they're dead. Dead people can have no impact on your life except by way of their example and their teaching. Is that all Jesus really was? That's what they're wrestling with. And they were despairing. But then comes the news from the angel that would be that turning point that would forever change their lives when the angel says he's not here, for he is risen as he said. Jesus was not the victim, but he was the victor. He had defeated Satan, he had defeated sin, he had defeated death itself. He had fulfilled all the promises that God had given to his people for all, through all the ages. And it all happened as he said. The angel reminded them that he had told them that he came not just to teach, not just to live a good example, not to live a perfect, righteous life, but to offer up his life as a sacrifice, to die and to be raised from the dead. He had told them. The angel could have said to them, he said it, he said it again, and he said it again. He could have really driven the point home, but he had said it, he had told them, and they didn't understand. This was God's plan from the beginning. At the beginning of the service, you well, look back at the beginning of the service, we read that, uh, Owen read for us that great passage from the first chapter of 1 Peter. Let me read that portion to you again. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Commenting on that verse, Edmund Clowney says this, he says, a hope that the, the resurrection is a hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. The resurrection produces in those who believe a hope that holds the future firmly in the present. It changes the present because it's anchored in the past. It's certain it's not wishful. It's a living hope, Peter says. A living hope, a hope that grows within us as our faith grows, because Christ's resurrection proves that these things are true. First of all, it proves that he was who he said he was. He was the eternal son of God, and he was also the son of man. Fully man with a fully human soul and body who lived a perfect life. And he's the eternal son of God, both fully God and fully man. He was who he said he was. The resurrection proves that his sacrifice of his life on the cross was acceptable to the father. Only an unblemished lamb could be offered up as the Passover lamb. And John the Baptist said, this Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The resurrection proves that God had accepted his sacrifice that God's wrath had been poured out upon our sin, that the price that our sin demanded had been paid. His resurrection proved 
that his sacrifice, which was the fulfillment of all the blood sacrifices offered by God's faithful priests up until that time, that his body, his blood, was that sacrifice that was acceptable to God. And if that's the case, then the resurrection proves that those who put their faith in Christ are forgiven. They are given the gift of Christ's righteousness and the guilt of their sin is taken away completely. That all of our sins, past, present, and future, were paid for at the cross and God looks upon us as his innocent children now. That's what the resurrection proves. And finally, it proves that death is not the end for those who believe in him. He defeated death. And Christ's resurrection proves and guarantees our resurrection. We will live with God in paradise for eternity. To the world, that sounds like a fairy tale. Wishful thinking. But because of the resurrection, we know that it is true. And that is our hope. What is your hope this morning? Do you have that hope? Do you live by that hope? What does your future look like? What does death mean to you? The second message that is given through the angel to these women that changed their lives forever is that the resurrection turns lives from emptiness to meaning and purpose. Because of the resurrection, our lives have purpose and meaning. In verse 7, the angel tells them, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. From that point on, those women's lives would have a mission to their lives. Their lives would have a purpose to go and tell others that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and all that that entails. They were to go and tell the disciples and that the disciples became the leaders of the early church and it was the early church in the matter of one generation that turned the world upside down by taking this message to the end of civilization. Go quickly and tell. Their lives had purpose from that point on. They lived a mission. It's interesting that the angel says to tell the disciples to meet with them in Galilee. And if you know the other accounts of the resurrection, you know that there's something that doesn't quite sit right there. It sounds like, if you only take what Matthew says, it sounds like that Jesus would not appear to his disciples until he appeared to them in Galilee just before his ascension to heaven. But we know that Jesus actually appeared to his disciples several hours later that day. And so why does Matthew leave that out? Why doesn't he mention, why doesn't the angel mention here? that he would meet with them in, in Jerusalem before, well before he would meet with them in Galilee. Well, it's because the meeting with them in Galilee had a very significant purpose. And the purpose is actually given at the end of this chapter. If you look at verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And then it goes on to give the great commission to the disciples and therefore to the church. Because it was in Galilee that they were prepared for and given the great commission to take the gospel, the good news of his resurrection and his crucifixion, 
and the salvation that it brings to us to take the news of that to the four corners of the earth. And it was at, in Galilee on that mountain that they saw Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, taking his throne as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that is where he has reigned ever since. That's the significance of Galilee. It speaks to our mission. It has been entrusted to us to take this gospel to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our marketplace, to our county, to our state, to this nation, to all the nations of the world. It's our mission. If God wanted to save us through the death and resurrection of Christ, if he wanted to do that only for the purpose of the people of that day to know him and be made perfect, he would have taken them to heaven right away. He would have ended this, this fallen world and all the sin and death and brokenness that's in it. He would have ended it right away, but that was not the plan of God. The plan of God was for this gospel to be taken not only to the ends of the world in that day, but in every generation until that day where at the end of God's plan, Jesus Christ will come again to bring paradise and to punish sin. Without the cross and the resurrection, there is no meaning and purpose to life. Just let that sink in for a moment. Meditate on that a second. Without the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no meaning and purpose to life. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author, said this, writing about his own life. He said, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me on the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this, What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that it, the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Let me read his question again. His final question. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? If you know the book of Ecclesiastes, that's the central message of the book of Ecclesiastes is that if the only existence there is is what's under the sun, and there is no God, and there is no Redeemer, if there's no death at the on the cross, and no resurrection, and no empty tomb, then life is meaningless. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. No purpose. If this world is all that there is, and the death is the end of our existence, then my message to you this morning would be, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die. And if that's the only good news that I had to offer from this pulpit, you should go out of here with grief and despair. But I hate to say this, there are churches all over town and all over this country and all around the world that deny the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ and its meaning, and the resurrection of Christ. And quite honestly, no matter what they say to try to inspire people and give them hope, that's all that they can really say. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. 
But if we know that Jesus died for our sins and he was raised for our justification, then our lives have a goal. Our lives have a purpose. We are on a mission to spread the truth. And to spread that truth in the context of lives that love one another and even love our enemies. Because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. We have what people need. People think they need a cure for cancer. People think they need millions of dollars. People think that they need popularity. What they need is a risen Jesus Christ. They need hope. They need eternal life. And it's been entrusted to us to deliver the message that will bring this to their lives. You need no greater purpose than that. People need forgiveness, they need eternal life, they need peace with God, and they need hope. And we've been given that message that will deliver. God's plan for all history is to transform the world by transforming sinners from the inside out. Tim Keller talks about uh, his Easter sermons, and this is what he says. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City who uh, preaches to thousands of, of uh upwardly mobile, successful, very secular business-type people and arts people. This is one thing he said in his book, The Reason for God. He said, each year at Easter, I get to preach on the resurrection. In my sermon, I always say to my skeptical, secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating disease, and caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging that so few people, so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing we do will make any difference? But if the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour yourself out for the needs of the world. Those who believe in the resurrection of Christ have meaning and purpose. Does your life have meaning and purpose? What do you live for? Why are you here? And what impact will your life have after you're gone? The third difference that the angel's message teaches us is that the resurrection turns lives from mere religion to true worship. As these women leave the empty tomb, they're full of fear and joy. They're still processing what in the world does this angel's message mean for them in their lives. And suddenly, as they're walking away from the tomb, there is the risen Christ before them, standing in front of them. It's interesting, the ESV translates Jesus' first word to them as greetings. And that sounds appropriate. So it sounds appropriately formal for the risen Lord and soon-to-be enthroned king of the universe. He says greetings, but actually, in the original Greek, the word there is the most common word for greeting someone. And so I think, actually, to give the gist of it, it should really say, hi. Jesus greets them. There he is. He's just defeated sin. He's just defeated death. He's just defeated the evil one. He's about to take the throne as the king of the universe. And he says to these women, hi. 
And I think the point is, he doesn't appear with lightning and, and with a, a heavenly glow about him or anything. It's the same Jesus that they knew four days ago. The same Jesus that had been crucified. Not yet glorified in heaven. Matter of fact, the disciples would soon see that he still had the wounds in his hands and his side. This is the same Jesus. And it wasn't a mirage. It wasn't a hallucination. Because it says the women fell at his feet and they grabbed his feet. You can't grab a ghost. You can't grab a hallucination. This was the Jesus who had taught them and done these miracles and who hung on the cross and died. He was alive. And they fell at his feet and they worshipped him. And Christ accepted their worship because that's what they should have done. That's what we should do. We should fall at the feet of the risen Christ and worship him because he is both God and man He's the eternal second person of the Godhead, fully God and fully man, and he is to be worshipped. And therein we find our ultimate meaning and purpose. We were created in order to worship our creator. That was our original purpose. But we rebelled against that, we rejected that, and we chose to worship the creature instead of the creator. We chose to worship ourselves instead of the one who created us to live self-centered lives. And I tell you, everybody outside of the true church of Christ, no matter who they say they worship, no matter what name they put on their false god, ultimately they worship themselves. And that's what mere religion is. False religion is. False religion is saying that you worship an imaginary god, but really it's doing things for this god for your benefit, and so ultimately it's about worshiping yourself. But when you meet the risen Christ, you find out what real worship is. It's meeting the one who created you. Meeting the one who is the judge who will stand, you will stand before at the end of your life. And, stand, and, and meeting the one who is your savior, the one who shed his blood, so that on that day you will be forgiven and accepted as righteous and given the gift of eternal life. That's the risen Jesus. And like we said about Esther and Mordecai, we all live a story, but we are not the hero of the story. Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. He always is. What the resurrection means is that life as we know it just changed at that moment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the turning point of all history. He is Savior, He is Lord, and He is coming again. The resurrection proves that. Does that message fill you with fear and grief, or does that message fill you with fear and joy? That's the difference between those who believe and those who do not. Do you need a turning point in your life? If so, it happened 2,000 years ago. That was the turning point. Believe it. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. And you can enter into the rest of your life with a fresh start, a new beginning. Changes that, yes, are going to cause some fear because you have no idea how much he's going to change your life. But joy because you can trust him that all of those changes will be for your good. He will transform you from inside out. And you will find the mission and purpose for your life. Let's pray.
Father, it seems so little to say, to say thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent him when we were still your enemies, still captive to sin, still living in darkness and rebellion. While we were still sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ died for us. Father, we need a new beginning. We need new hope. We need meaning and purpose. For those that have known that meaning and purpose and that hope, I pray that this Lord's Day, this Easter Sunday, will be a time of renewal and revival as they embrace their hope and purpose in Christ. But for any here this morning who don't know him, I pray, Lord, that they would reconsider. Look at the resurrection. There are so many sound historical evidences that this really did take place. And certainly your word gives, gives so much testimony to the reality that he has conquered death and sin and hell. Father, I pray that they would find new meaning, new hope, and new purpose in the good news that Jesus died for their sins and was raised from the dead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.